Well, good morning. My name's Aubrey, and it's very good to see those of you who are here and those of you who are worshiping with us online. I wish that I could see you. I look forward to the day when we can do that again. If you have a Bible, please find our New Testament reading from the, gospel, from the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. So we've been going through the book of James since the beginning of May. And uh, last week, we got up to the paragraph that's verses 19 to 21. And at the end of that paragraph, the last phrase of our passage last week, um, the, the last bit of verse 21 there says that we should receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So what we saw last week, we heard about God's word. It has the power to save us, to save the most important part of us, the core of us, the real us. It, it, it can save your soul. And, and we need this salvation. I know that some of the people in my family need it, for example. Um, they know that I need it. Um, just like you know that the people you live with need to be saved. Our community needs to be saved. Our city does. Our country needs to be saved. And the word saved, I'm using it in the way the Bible uses it. It uses it in this big, thick way that's talking about you need help. Your life is in shambles. You're sick. You're suffering. You're poor. You're being treated with injustice. When the Bible uses the word saved, it's all of that, not just forgiven of your sins and living life eternally with God. Definitely that. But it's this huge, big, big, thick salvation. Our country needs saving right now. Now, that's where the last paragraph ended. This paragraph... The passage for today, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, it's carrying on with that same theme. The power, the ability of God's word to save us. But notice, listening to God speaking is not enough. Receiving God's word is not enough. It says in verse 22, the next paragraph, our paragraph for today, but, just in case you're confused, just in case you think that going to church and sitting in church or reading your Bible is enough, that God's word will save you, that God's word is like CPR, that you can be laying there, out of it, unconscious, and you just receive it. You just receive CPR and it saves you. That's not what the receive here means. This is more like the way a person receives love in a relationship. You don't receive love. You don't receive relational goods passively. You can't receive God's word passively. So he says in verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only. We have to obey the word. God can save us from destroying our lives. He gives us his word to do that. He can save you from destroying one another. He can save this earth. He can save us from our sins, our sins against each other, our sins against the earth. He can even save America from our 400-year history of racial trauma and the, the oppression 
that's still plaguing the black community in our country. But here's the catch. To receive God's salvation through his word, we have to obey his word. We've got to do what it says. In verse 21, God told us to listen to his word and receive it. And in verse 22, he knows that we're slippery and slimy and we'll take that at a minimum level. And he says, so but, 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 you have to do it in order to receive it. So God tells us here that we can't be passive. We can't just sit back and go to church and listen to sermons and podcast Christian talks and read our Bibles in the morning. Listening is vital, but merely listening is just as foolish as not listening. So in our passage this morning, God gives us, this, this morning's sermon is for those of you who are tired of my sermons without an outline. So here goes like a good old Baptist outline, all right? Number one, three reasons to obey his word. Then he gives us number two, two ways to obey his word. And finally, number three, one reward for those who obey. So three reasons to obey, then two ways to obey, and finally one reward for those who do obey. Okay, so first of all, he gives us three reasons to obey God's word. Notice what it says in verse 25. But the one who looks at himself, um, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who works, he will be blessed in his doing. So notice that right in the middle of that, the one who looks into the perfect law. Now, buried in that phrase is a reason to obey. But to catch it, you have to read the whole book. Remember, I've been telling you every week, we're going to preach, I'm going to preach through the letter of James over the course of the summer. Please, once a week, sit down and read it in just one fly, one cup of tea or coffee or whatever you drink. It takes the average reader 16 or so minutes to do that. And what you will notice when you read the book is that normally James doesn't call the Bible law. He calls it the word. He called it that in verse 18. He called it that in verse 21. He called it the word in verse 22. And he called it the word in verse 23. So by the time we get here, four times he's referred to Scripture as the word. And now suddenly, out of the blue, he calls it something else. He calls it the law. And so when you're reading a, a, any literature and a pattern's been set up, and then the pattern is broken, just good literary reading says, oh, what just happened there? Why did he do that? There's a lot of different ways that the Bible refers to the Bible. And by referring to it in this way as law, what James is doing is he's reminding us of something very simple. That every part of the Bible demands a response. Law requires something. It requires something. That's what he's doing. When you read the Bible, don't ever just read it and move on. That's a terrible habit to fall into. It's an easy habit to fall into. We go to church, we go home, and we get caught up in lunch or our friends or our favorite afternoon activity here in the valley. And it's so easy to hear the word or to read it in the morning in your devotional time and then just move right on. And that's a very dangerous habit to establish with Scripture. Because when it comes to the Bible, like I told you last week, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, an amazing philosopher, Danish, he said, when it comes to reading the Bible, you must always say to yourself, 
It's to me God is speaking. In this moment, God is speaking personally and directly and immediately to me. And that's sort of what James is getting at here. He's saying this requires a response. You cannot be passive. If God's word doesn't have an impact on your life, then you're missing out. You're missing the point of reading it. That's the first reason to obey God's word. Because it's law. It's the very nature of God's word that it requires obedience. The second reason James tells us that we need to obey God's word. Notice how he describes this law. The perfect law. A second reason we need to obey God's word is because it is perfect law. Now what does that mean? Again, he's not doing complex stuff here. What he's saying is God's word fits perfectly. It's exactly what we need. It's not a misfit. It's not putting on something that wasn't made for you. It's like you looking at somebody who's wearing an outfit for a wedding and you say, it's perfect. What are you saying there? It's just right for you. Wouldn't look so good on Nate, but looks great on Rachel. Would you like to see Nate in Rachel's dress? No, I've seen Nate in some very short shorts before. It was quite jarring. I wouldn't call it perfect. God's word is perfect for us. It's exactly what we need. Now, that's the whole point of the weird mirror illustration that he brings up in verse 23 and 24. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, well, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. He's saying when you read the Bible, it reads you. It shows you you. It reveals you to you. Now, this happens in two ways. First of all, when we read the Bible, we have the opportunity to see what we're supposed to look like. It's a magic mirror. It's like the mirror that shows you what you can be, what you have the potential to be. So when I look in the mirror, it would never show me with hair. That potential is not there. Quite clear, right? So the Bible as a mirror shows you what God made you to be. And here's the the reason it does. The word natural self there, it's a Greek word, genesios, which sounds like what word we can think of? Genesis. It's the same word used in Luke with the genealogy of Jesus, used in Matthew. It's a reference to the creation account. And what he's saying is when you look in the scripture, that's the place you can find what a human is supposed to be. A true human, a full human. And so when we read the Bible, we can find our way out of all the distortions. We can discover who we were made to be. And what is that? Well, in Genesis, it tells us when humans were created, it says they were made. Does anybody know how? In the what? From the earth, that's right. And they were made in the what? In the image of God. You and I were made In the image of God. What does that mean? What does God do? What is the first thing God does in the Bible? In the beginning, God creates. The first thing God does is creates. So read the Bible. Look at the character called God. And say, oh, I'm made in the image of that character. Now, 
that's what you're supposed to do. So what does it mean to be a human? It means you are to bring love and justice and goodness and kindness into the world. It means you're to bring joy and peace and creativity and flourishing into your workplace, to your employees, to your employers. It means you're to bring patience and gentleness and self-control to your family and your roommates and your classroom. So when you read the Bible, slow down, think, pray, and ask, how does this passage help me see what a true human is like? How a true human should act or what they should do or what they should think? What kind of attitude does this passage teach that God would have if he were me in my shoes right now. Now, another thing that it means when it says you get to see your natural face, it, it means not only do you get to see that you were made in the image of God and that's how you need to be, it also means you get to see how you really look. Not just how you're supposed to look, but how far from the image of God you've fallen. How much unlike God you're acting. In other words, it shows you not only what you can become, it shows you what you are. It shows me my own sinfulness. It reveals to you your moral condition. James's point isn't complicated here. You walk out the door, and right before you leave the house, you take a glimpse in, in a mirror, and you discover there's a blob of ketchup on your shirt. You discover that your hair is a mess. The mirror shows you the truth. It's foolish to look in a mirror, see a big splot of toothpaste on your face still hanging off, and to act like that's not true. Why did my mirror do that to me? No, if the mirror shows you a problem, deal with it, zip your fly, comb your hair, find a different shirt. God's Word shows us what we're really like. Now, for example, our passage this week might, for example, be showing you right now that you've fallen into a bad habit of just going to church and then going home and not really taking it all in and reflecting and thinking and praying about how can I put this into practice. Maybe you look at the sermon and the scripture like you look at a mirror in an antique shop. Instead of looking in the mirror to get something out of it, when you're antiquing, you look at a mirror. But here he's saying, don't treat the mirror of God's word like an antique to be observed. Treat it like a real mirror that you look in and you respond to what it shows you. And maybe, maybe you've fallen into a habit of not doing that. Or maybe last week's passage, maybe if you slow down and listen and look and pray at the passage on anger. And you read God's word that commands you, be slow to anger. And if you just stop and you inventory your life. And you realize you are not slow to anger. But there's a certain set of circumstances that you are quick to anger. And then you respond to that. You repent of that. You seek God's help for that. Or maybe it's, it's the opposite. Maybe last week's passage commands you to be slow to anger. Maybe your problem is not that you're quick to anger. Maybe your problem is that you're not mad about something you ought to have slowly grown in anger over. For example, the plight of the black community in the United States. If you are not angry about that, you should be. You should have read Be Slow to Anger last week. If you're a person who's never been victimized by race, you should have watched George Floyd's 
terrible murder, and it should, you sh- it should have weighed on you this 400-year-long injustice. We've had 400 years to get angry. Surely if the Bible says be slow to anger, <laughs> that's it. And you must become angry that the African-American community was kidnapped and enslaved and then experienced the injustice of the Jim Crow era followed by the catastrophic experiment of mass incarceration in our own era. So we must obey God's word, first of all, because it's law. It's meant to be obeyed. And second of all, because it's perfect. It fits us perfectly. And thirdly, notice what he says about it in verse 25. The one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty or freedom. That's the third reason to obey God's word. Because God's word is a law that brings freedom. Now this line of reasoning sounds absurd to us today. Because we've been conditioned to think that freedom is choice. And the opposite of choice is lack of freedom. And anything that removes a choice is an um, assault on your freedom. What's happened is that over the last couple of hundred years, we've begun to shift the definition of freedom into the category of autonomy. And there's all kinds of reasons. We didn't beg for that to happen. We didn't wake up saying we want it to happen. It's just kind of the pot cooking, uh, growing slowly more hot. But so what ends up happening is that this idea that a law can bring freedom feels odd to us. We tend to think freedom means choice. Removing a choice is lack of freedom. Here's the catch. Before the last 200 years, freedom was not looked at in that way. And in the Bible, freedom is definitely not looked at in that way. In the Bible, God teaches us that real freedom is not about the absence of constraint. It's about the presence of right constraint. Here's an example. If you take a fish out of water and remove the constraint of water and lay it on the earth, have you given the fish freedom? Absolutely not. But fish, I remove the boundary as he's gulping for air. And he looks at you and say, well, your freedom stinks, right? Your freedom is killing me, all right? That's, that's the deal. God's law, when it brings freedom, it's, it's, it's like the fish in the water. By restricting our freedom in some ways, God opens up for us real freedom. The greater freedom. We sang this song earlier. I am who you say I am. I'm a child of God. I am free. That was a big part of it. The problem with Americans singing a song about being free is that we constantly bootleg into it our current cultural definition of freedom. So we think we're standing there singing, I'm free. God set me free. I'm no longer constrained. And the problem is we... We're not reflecting on exactly what that looks like. No, what it means to say I'm free indeed is to mean I've taken on the the set of constraints like a fish takes on water that lets me be truly free. When you obey the Bible, God's word, God's law, God's perfect law, you find your way to true freedom. As we live by God's word, 
we experience true life. Only then can you be properly free. Why? Because God made us. And as we follow his word and live in his ways, our lives end up going along the grain of how he designed us to live. So here's the catch. God's word is the perfect law that brings freedom. And that's the difference between God's law and our laws. The people in our church who work in the political system or the justice system have helped me understand that we're constantly coming up with laws that we're trying to do a good thing that have these unintended consequences that can make things really bad. That, that happened with our border laws over the 80s and the 90s. God's law wasn't made by the U.S. House of Representatives with a limited set of wisdom and limited foresight. God's commands are perfect. Why? Because he's totally wise. Because he knows every consequence. So he gives them out of that wisdom. But not only do they come from his fount of all wisdom, but they also come out of his pure love for us and his desire for us to flourish. You don't ever have to think, is God just doing some special interest law here to protect his party in the universe against my party in the universe? That's not how it works. And so what all this means is that your life is never better without God's word. And your life is never poorer with God's law. No command of God will ever work against you. Ignoring God's command will never work for you. That's the reason we respond to scripture readings. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. Thank you for giving us the law that's a perfect fit that brings me freedom. We say thanks be to God after the word is read just like the fish when you throw him back in water says, thank you, Tyler. I've been waiting for this water. So there we are. Three reasons to obey God's word. Because it's law, it's meant to be obeyed. Because it's perfect, it fits us perfectly. And because it brings freedom. That's why we should obey it. Now, Next, he tells us two ways we're supposed to obey his word. Again, verse 25. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. So there's one way to obey it. With perseverance. Keep on. It's hard. Keep on. Being no hearer who forget, but a doer who acts. Circle that word acts or underline it. That's the second way he will be blessed in his doing. Okay, let's start with the second one. The way we're to obey God's word, it says, is no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Now, that word acts. This is one of the moments, and there's not a lot of these, but this is one of the moments in the Bible where if you can read the Bible in its original language, there's nuance and there's depth that comes out that's very difficult to capture in an English translation. And here's, here's the reason for that. That word acts a doer who acts. In the original language, it's ergu. Kind of a weird word, right? Ergu, all right. The root of the word is erg, E-R-G. That root is a major word root in the book of James. It comes up in James chapter 2, verse 14, and 2.17, and 2.24, and chapter 3, verse 13, and it's the word root that means works. 
Now, if you've ever been to a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church, when they preach on James, they're going to spend a lot of time talking about um, works. It's a major issue going on in James. One, and the reason it's important to recognize that here, in my Bible, I've actually scratched out the word acts, and I, I think a more helpful translation, being no hearer forgets, but a doer of works. This one will be blessed. Because he comes up and he spends a whole chapter talking about works. Not works in general, but particular works. In, in the very next chapter, he zooms in, a very next um, paragraph. Notice verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The works he's most concerned with are works of compassion and holiness. So he sets us up by bringing the word works in, but he's going to spend the next end of the chapter and the next whole chapter telling you what works in particular he's really concerned about. So if you want to be a person that's blessed in obedience of the word, make sure you do these two things. The obedience of compassion and the obedience of holiness. Now we're going to deal with holiness more next week, but this is what I want you to think about. In James chapter 2, works of compassion are clearly deeds of mercy for the poor, for the powerless. Compassion. My favorite definition of compassion is by this uh, guy named Oliver O'Donovan. He's an ethicist in England. And he gets it right out of the Bible. He gets it, for example, right out of Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. Notice, disease, sickness, he, there's all this brokenness and pain and suffering. And it says, every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, what crowds? With diseases and afflicted. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. So here's a definition for the works of compassion that the Bible, here's a definition for compassion. Compassion is the virtue of being moved to action by the sight of suffering. Compassion is the virtue of being moved into action by the sight of suffering. So again, bring all this back into verse 25. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer of compassion. A, a person who lets himself see suffering internalizes it, doesn't push it away psychologically, doesn't run away from it, but brings it all the way in until it moves that person to do something. That's what you've got. That's what a doer of the word is in this passage. This is one of the ways we have to obey God's word. Look, six months ago, eight months ago, when we committed to preach through James, I did not know this passage would be right in the middle of all the rioting and the protesting that's going on because of the murder of George Floyd. How can you read that and not think of this situation? Our job is always to read the Bible with our feet firmly planted in the communities and the nation and the place we live. You have to read the Bible on the earth. We must respond to the suffering of the black community with the virtue of compassion. And what is that? It's to commit yourself to look until you bring the suffering in and then you act on it. 
Last week I talked about that, the need for us to see the suffering, to watch the videos. And a lot of you have said, yes, and a lot of you have done that. And you're talking to each other and you're talking to me. And people are now saying, what now? What do we do now? And you're looking for ways to respond. I'm so glad. There are so many good resources pointing toward a plethora of practical responses to the wealth disparity between white and black, to the health disparities that leave black people more vulnerable to the ravages of the coronavirus than white people, to the centuries-long disparities in violence and the threat of violence. There are so many resources available if you would go to wise places and not just the echo chamber that's deconstructing the response. But if you can go to wise places, you can find practical things we can do to help with the daily indignity suffered by the African-American community. Some of the protests and marchers and, and gatherings that I participated in in our community over this past week or two weeks have helped me begin to find practical actions that I can take. And I hope you're doing the same. And as we do this, remember, you defeat things you hate, but you can only change things you love. Have you ever had somebody who you're convinced doesn't like you try to help you? When your posture is one of dislike or disapproval or hate, it's hard for the person getting that vibe from you to be helped by you. You know the saying, if you come to somebody with a club and an argument, until you put the club down, They're not going to be able to hear the argument very well. The deep structures of our culture can only be changed by people who go out into their workplaces, into their neighborhoods, into their communities every day on a mission to love my neighbor as myself. So verse 25 gives us two ways to obey God's word. The first is deeds of compassion and holiness. We'll talk about holiness next week. And the second is Works of compassion done with perseverance. Better the one who looks into the, be the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Obeying God's word on the racial suffering in our nation right now is not a one and done. It's not watch the help, have a good cry, and then wake up to the next issue. Obeying God's word takes persistence. The huge paradox of modern times is that we've overcome so many bigotries and unlocked so many doors to human flourishing, and yet it took us 20 years when America put its mind to getting rid of British colonial control. This is, we've got to deal with this. We can deal with this. We have to. We're required to. There's so much work to be done. It can be overwhelming. So that's the trick. How do you persevere in a work that looks like a mountain to climb and it looks overwhelming? The author, Anne Lamont, she keeps a one-inch frame on the desk where she writes. And whenever she struggles to get started writing, she looks at that one-inch picture frame and, quote, it reminds me that all I have to do today is write down as much as I can see through a one-inch picture frame. And that's a really, writing books are hard. (laughs) And doing works of compassion are hard because it's overwhelming. And this is such a helpful way to think about it. Just find one inch worth of action. One inch worth of, don't, don't be overcome by the Swiss Alps. 
Just find your one inch a picture frame that you can fill with action. Now, so three reasons to obey God's word, two ways to obey God's word with works of compassion and holiness, and then secondly, with pers- perseverance. And finally, the one reward for those who obey God's word. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who works, he will be blessed in his doing. Notice where this whole passage ends. Yeah, it does start with law. And we're kind of, that's a negative word for us. We're just trained. Don't put that on me. But notice where it ends. Blessed. We've seen three reasons to obey, two ways to obey. And there's a reward for those who obey. What is it? It's blessing. You know what? Look, blessing is not rocket science in the Bible. It's God's favor. The person who does this will have God's favor on them. Notice it says they will be blessed. It doesn't say because of the doing. It says you'll be blessed in the doing, right? That's exactly what he will be blessed in his doing. As you persevere in these hard works of compassion. And next week, the hard labor for holiness. As you persevere in that, you will be blessed in doing. The point is, when you look into this law, the word of God, it is supposed to change you. The word must go to work. And when that happens, God's blessing, God's favor will follow you. This means you're deceived. If you think you can bring God's kingdom and God's justice to bear on the racial suffering of America apart from following God's law. So as you're being called into this work, you follow God's law and you will receive God's blessing, his favor in the midst of it. Let's pray.